My extra special guest this week is Rory Sutherland, the Vice Chairman of Ogilvy UK. It wasn't actually this week that we recorded it, it was some time ago, but this is the final part of our interview. We chopped it into three parts because we spoke for such a long time and he packs so much into every minute of the interview. It made sense to break it up just so I could take it all in, reflect, come back to it, think about it again. Uh, in this part, for instance, we talk about so much. Um, we talk about why placebos are a good thing and why marketers should use it more in their marketing, how we can take a perceived weakness of a product and turn it into a strength. Um, the most famous example of this is probably the Avis Wear Number 2 So We Try Harder campaign. Uh, we discuss why his book, Alchemy, has been so popular with the finance community in America. It, it's probably because they're all obsessed with rational and irrational decision-making. Um, his conversations with uh, Nobel Prize-winning Daniel Kahneman, uh, the author of Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, wouldn't you have just loved to be a fly on that wall of those guys speaking? They talk about the focusing illusion, which it essentially says nothing as is as important as we think it is while we're thinking about it, which could actually be the whole reason why advertising works at all. I, look, I'm not going to give this a big intro. I'm just going to say, without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Rory Sutherland. That's really interesting because all those things are placebos. Essentially, they are yeah, yeah, yeah. to the product. Yeah. Um, they're, they're not they're not objective things that we can measure and taste and touch. They are things that have been built in either consciously or, or, or unconsciously by the marketer or the or the product developer to, to kind of make the product more appealing. So let's talk about placebos because you have a really interesting argument in the book where it actually says that marketers should build placebo. There's nothing wrong with actually having a placebo and actually doctors. No, 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 no. Right? If it works, if it works, if it I mean, works. We, we, we have to have this argument in medicine because they try and correct for the placebo effect. Hmm. And I would argue from a purely, a pure question of efficacy in medicine, you should try and maximize the placebo sure. effect. Sure. So if making the ritual weird, for example, uh, you know, I, I always thought that, you know, Araldite had a strong kind of psychological placebo effect because you had to mix it. Now, maybe if you had a drug where you had to mix it and it fizzed in an exciting way. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, most foam uh, in uh, detergents is there for show. Okay, so the bubbles used to be part of the actual process. Now they add surfactants to washing powder, basically because people see the bubbles and go, hmm, it's cleaning my clothes. Okay, it must be good. In the same way that you want your shampoo to lather up. I'm sure you could produce a perfectly efficacious shampoo um, that didn't lather up in the same way, but we'd feel it was all wrong. Exactly. We go, this isn't working at all. Same thing with toothpaste. Right. Yeah, toothpaste, all that sort of stuff. And so, so there's a fascinating thing there, which is the extent to which medicine would regard it as entirely anti-scientific to try and maximize this effect. Mm -hmm. Psychologists might say, well, anything that dupes the body into thinking it's being healed, which has therefore positive confirmatory effects, um, might actually be worth adding, even though... Uh, 
it's a placebo effect, not a, um, a pharmacological effect. Sure. Well, so that's really, I think that's really, you know, it's, it, it's, really simply, it's simply yeah. a debate. No, no, you know, if I, I, okay, I jokingly said of the Labour manifesto, I said, every marketer on principle should be opposed to 50% tax because it right. should be 49.99%. Right. Okay. And people think I'm joking, but I'm not intelligent because the point of the tax take is to reduce disincentives to work while raising as much tax as possible. Okay? Sure. Roughly speaking. Okay. Now, my psychologically if i'm if someone says do you want to do this thing for a thousand quid and the government's taking half it's going to feel more expensive 50 percent tax mm -hmm. than 49.99 even though the difference is only a few pence sure and my argument is well look if you want to reduce disincentives to work actually set it at 48 percent, not 50. Because 50 is a psychological barrier when you think it about is. it, which yeah. is that, okay, everything I bloody well do, okay, it used to be, whatever happened, everything I did is I got something and the government got a bit less, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Okay, when you do hit 50%, that is a kind of, oh, shit, is it, you know, bloody hell, divide <laughs> that by point? two. Right. What's the point? You know, and so it seems to me that um, uh, genuinely that, that people will go, well, that's just silly. You're playing with marketing. I'm going, but the point is the behavior. The point is the resultant behavior. Mm -hmm. It's not the, the cause of the behavior. And acknowledging that people aren't, strictly speaking, economically rational um, is, uh, you know, what are you trying to do? Are you, are you basically trying to design the world around economics? Sure. Because economic man doesn't exist. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the man on the spreadsheet. I mean, I think people got actually literally, it's like the angry with me for saying that, but I still maintain that I'm right because, um, uh, you know, that's how people price things. Well, one of the interesting <coughs> points in the book that you raised was about night nurse. You said night nurse was going to be scrapped by scientists who first yeah. came up with it because even though it helped to cure, cure your flu, it made you drowsy. Yeah, so, you didn't want, you don't want HGV drivers on night nurse, right? Uh, no, so they, they basically said, we've, we've produced this fantastic thing yeah. that does reduce the symptoms of flu. Yeah. The downside is that it makes you drowsy. And it was a marketing guy who said, actually, said, um, if you position it as a nighttime flu remedy, what's normally a bug turns into a feature. Because the very fact that it knocks you out is exactly what you want when you're having difficulty sleeping Definitely. because your nose is blocked and you feel like shit. And um, so that, that's a case of absolutely fantastic genius, which is the same thing in a different context. Really? And I think that, you know, that's what I always say about great advertising. It takes a weakness sometimes and rebrands it as a strength. Right. Or reframes it as a strength. Uh, good things come to those who wait for Guinness, reassuringly expensive for Stella, mm -hmm. all those kind mm -hmm. of things. Mm -hmm. An example where, if you know, we're number two, so we try harder is the most fantastic case of that, I think. Um, uh, and and um, so what you could actually do, I mean, by the way, fantastic case of fame. I don't know if the book includes this alongside the Mona Lisa, but diamonds as the centerpiece for uh, significant jewellery. Mm -hmm. That was created. That By wasn't a natural thing. Yeah. Di diamonds were kind of an adjunct to the main ruby, sapphire, or what. They're not even the most expensive gemstone in the world, by the way. Aren't they, like, really plentiful as well? Well... <laughs> Your burrs, the yeah, yeah. yeah. the, 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 the supply theory. is artificially constrained. There's also some talk, which is um, that 
this is what this is a rumor I had, so do not necessarily quote me on this. That you can now make up to a certain size, you can now make artificial diamonds uh, very, very cheaply. And there's someone telling me that the best response to this for De Beers is to produce artificial diamonds in huge quantities, hmm. so they become so cheap that they lose signaling value and the real diamonds preserve their value, hmm. even though chemically they're identical. Hmm. So the trick is actually not to actually try and restrict. If you can't restrict artificially made, factory made diamonds and the production of them, weirdly, the best solution is to overproduce them. Hmm. So they actually, essentially, you preserve the distinction between real and... Now, I mean... That's a really, really interesting debate as to what you do in response to something of that kind. Quite. Uh, it is a really, really tough question. But the whole thing was that, um, I mean, they are very, very rare. I mean, in terms, you know, and, and, and of course, the larger they get, the rarer they are. So there's a wonderful signaling effect there, which is if sure. you've got one of those huge rocks on your finger, it costs serious money. Um, but they're certainly not the most expensive gemstones. And that, and, and brilliant framing things like, um, uh, actually, it cropped up in. I don't know if you're watching um, uh, on BBC One that thing called Gold Digger. No, but you know, the husband boasts that you know when he bought his wife a, uh, a, a an engagement ring, it was three months' salary, I think. And that framing goes back to the De Beers advertising campaign of Diamond is Forever, where mm. they started off with a line, "How else does a month's salary last a lifetime?" <laughs> and it was a genius line Fantastic. in that it framed an amount that people could spend. Now, you obviously couldn't frame what you should spend on an engagement ring as a dollar amount. Right. Because that would be crazy, because, you, you know, sure. Rupert Murdoch and me and so forth right. are all going to have very, very different, different ways of signaling. Right. We've got to stick, we've got, you've got to signal, this has hurt me. Buying this is painful. It's expensive. Mm. Okay. Mm. But obviously that's going to vary as a dollar amount, depending on what you earn. But sure. turning it into a month's salary is an unbelievably uh, cutting uh, creation of a, of a norm or, or, a, or an anchor. Um, and so no, and that's probably the most successful ad campaign of all time in terms of, uh, it's also embarrassing to say, that I would find this out, that the two most successful ad campaigns of all time are probably for diamonds and cigarettes, uh, in the case of Marlborough, the cowboy, which that? is always a kind of awkward argument when you're, uh, <laughs> when, when you're making my pro-alchemy argument, which is the, you know, two of the cases. But the point I'm making is, let you know, uh, Obviously, you can use this power for evil as well as for good. I wouldn't deny this for a second. I also believe it's important to teach people about alchemy so they can spot when it's being used for evil. Against them, yeah, definitely. I'll give you the, the example of the thing I think is most evil and most unpleasant. Because, you know, but while I'm plugging this shit, it's only fair <laughs> that, you know, I mean, you know, I work in advertising, so obviously I'm a little bit biased to the pro-capitalist line, whereas sure. someone who worked in public health would be you're manipulating kids to eat McDonald's, whereas right. you know, a lot of the reason kids eat McDonald's is because it's sodding delicious. But mm. um, the, argument, the argument I would make is that um, setting the default repayment for a credit card at a level which just keeps you solvent. So I think the, the best thing you can do in financial services, if I'm giving financial advice, is go to all your credit cards and set the default minimum payment at something like 
um, what would it be? Well, set, set it at um, vastly more than the minimum payment. So, you know, if your minimum payment is five quid, set the, set the default standing order payment to your credit card at 50, 100, 150 pounds. Right. I never did this because I thought that then I'd overrun and my credit card would be in credit. Direct debits don't work like that. If you've got a direct debit of £150 to your credit card and you only owe 50 it only removes 50 from your account. Right. Okay. But what they did is they set the minimum payment at a level where if you're £1,000 in debt and all you did was make the minimum payments, it would take you something like 17 years or something, 15 years sure. to pay off that debt. Sure. If you simply double the minimum payment, it goes down to like four. I mean, I, don't quote me exactly on the math. Sure. But it's an extraordinarily it's, evil right, default. Really because it defaults a level of long-term borrowing for which credit cards are not intended. They're not intended as a form of long-term borrowing. Mm. You know, a credit card makes perfect sense. You know, if you want to go on holiday now and you haven't got the money, mm -hmm. then going on holiday now and paying over six months is better than paying over, saving over six months and going on holiday at the wrong time of year yeah. when you're totally knackered. Right. Now, I'm, not, I'm not opposed to using uh, debt to fund what we do, mm. but the fact that they set the default repayment at the level which turned it into a long-term loan when it was intended as a short-term uh, fix. Sure. Is absolutely horrible. You know, I mean, that's that. I mean, I, 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 you know, if I were in government, one of the first things I do is just say, okay, the default repayment rates, basically the default rate's going to double. If you want to, you can still write to text your credit card company and say, can you halve my repayment this month? Okay, because you're skint. I get that. Okay, you may want to do that, but the making the default shitty was an appalling thing, which government should have slammed on. Um, uh, I'm sounding like Elizabeth Warren here, but gov <laughs> government should have stamped on this years ago, decades ago. I mean, I, I, I really believe that. Really, really interesting. I mean, I guess that's why they've brought in PSD2 and open banking to kind of shake up the banking system and increase competition. So, you know, uh, what, one, one thing I also think is employers uh, should uh, lend employees a you know, a fraction of their future, their next month's salary at a very low interest rate, simply because the employers don't need to worry about non-repayment because they can simply withhold your salary if you if you fail. So the so the extent to which employers could help because they've actually got much more security over your money because they get it first. Okay, mm. employers should be encouraged to offer low interest short term loans to uh, uh, to destroy the kind of Wonga effect. And I think a, num a number of, of them are. I'm, I'm, I'm well, no, no, I, I, I think that is happening because yeah. it's the terrible, you know, if you think about it, the best way to give your employees a pay rise isn't actually to give them more money. It's to reduce their interest repayments. Hmm. Okay. So there are probably cases where there are a load of employers who, let's face it, can possibly borrow at 1%. Okay, they've got a load of employees and there's a whole debate about do we give our employees a pay rise? And I'd say, don't give your employees a pay rise, give them a low interest loan because it will have more effect. It will cost you less. Hmm. Okay, that's a complete win-win. It's only the banks that suffer if you do that. And um, quite, quite fascinating. Let's talk about the focusing illusion and, and how marketers can best use it because Daniel Kahneman, and I know that you yep. were a huge fan, he says that nothing is, um, is as important as we think it is as we are thinking about it. Explain. Yeah, so this is a lovely one because, um, because 
if you think about it, Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for economics with, um, uh, and he won it really for prospect theory. Mm -hmm. But when he was asked, what is your most important insight of your working life? He didn't cite prospect theory, which had won his Nobel Prize. He cited this thing, yeah. which is, uh, it's a, he's also got the phrase, wisiati, what you see is all there is. Oh, okay. Right. And the fact is that where we direct our attention patently affects our evaluation. And you could argue that that's how advertising works, that by paying, by forcing us to pay attention to an aspect of something, we make that aspect of something relatively more important because people are paying attention to it. Hmm. And so my argument would be, if you want to compete with something where you are better on one dimension, but worse on another. Okay. Hmm. Now, um, very simply, okay, you have to, this is a totally crude and stupid example, but uh, the Range Rover, whatever it is, has a lovely interior, okay? It's not very economical, okay? So what you would always do if you advertise a Range Rover is to show the loveliness of the interior or whatever right. it is. You wouldn't talk about fuel economy. Right. And, by, and, and by dint of doing that, you make considerations of comfort, luxury, and opulence hmm. more important in the consumer's mind and considerations of economy less important. Right. So, so the interesting thing is that logically, in a way, it's probably an evolutionary necessity that we work this way, which is this thing has gained my attention, therefore it's important. And so the first, I mean, now Kahneman, Kahneman, interestingly, we did have a, a, a brief, when I met him, a brief argument about this, because he thinks that leather seats, our preference for leather seats, is a focusing illusion. That actually, arguably, cloth seats are more comfortable, and that leather seats are something which have, we've been indoctrinated into valuing. Uh, in cars now i have <laughs> many people point out that if you if you've ever had young children vomit in a car with cloth <laughs> seats you quite quickly discover that leather seats have certain yeah. issues um, it's, it's right. worth remembering that yeah. it's worth yeah. remembering that it's not quite as simple as that yeah um uh but th there is there is an element there i think where um actually i did have a lift with uh, Daniel Kahneman, and um, he rented a Prius, I'm very proud to say. But um, the, interesting, the interesting thing is that... Uh, Counter-signaling. And, and, you know, you could argue when you've got a Nobel Prize for economics, no one ever goes, yeah, he's got a Nobel Prize, but what car does he drive? Right, exactly. So, yeah, no, counter-signaling's a biggie. I mean, that's a, yeah. that's a biggie. But um, I think it's... Um, I think, there, I think um, uh, it's important, by the way, because... In a competitive capitalist economy, uh, lot, you know, everything's a bit of a trade-off. And making sure that people don't... What worries me about a lot of online selection is the algorithm or the design of the website decides for you what is important. So if you go and look for trains on a train website, mm -hmm. it will always only show the fastest trains because that's the first order measure. Now, what advertising would do is say, is, is say, don't only pay attention to one thing, let's say speed of journey. Mm -hmm. Actually, if you travel to Bristol on Southwestern trains, you get free Wi-Fi uh, mm -hmm. or whatever it is, you see. And so 
Now, okay, what's important about a train? Is it speed or is it free Wi-Fi? Well, it's complicated. There's no mathematical formula for making the trade-off sure. between Wi-Fi and speed. So if you are running a train that was slower, what you do to compete is you'd say, well, we could spend a billion pounds making this train faster than our competitors' train, mm. or we could put really, really good 5G Wi-Fi on the train advertise the fact that there's 5g wi-fi that will mean that people seeing the advertising will reweight the relative importance of speed and wi-fi and lots of people will go on our train because they'll go actually 30 minutes extra with wi-fi is better than a shorter journey with no wi-fi exactly okay and by reframing the thing what you create is a messy informational environment which is essential to capitalism because it's the messy informational environment that allows markets to capture and aggregate lots of different people's different preferences uh, when decisions are made in wildly different contexts. You had the same uh, sort of concept when you were waiting for an airport bus to pick you up mm. from the terminal to take you to I love I uh, love the fact the you used that example, yeah. So I'd always thought of the bus as shit. Because I was thinking of it as an inferior air bridge in a, as a means of getting to the airport. Mm -hmm. But when the pilot said, I've got bad news and good news, the bad news is I won't be able to get you an air bridge because there's a plane blocking our gate. The good news is the bus will drive you all the way to passport control mm. so you won't have far to walk with your carry-on bags. I'd reframe the bus as a way of getting from the plane to my luggage, mm -hmm. which was a different comparative set, at which the bus had certain strengths. Because if you've got a huge airport like Schiphol, Schiphol's a bit of a pain because it's only one terminal, which means that you can end up walking for three quarters of a bloody mile just to get out of the airport. <laughs> and suddenly I saw that the bus potentially, at London City Airport, the bus isn't really a benefit because you've got to wait for the bloody bus and it only takes you 100 yards. Mm -hmm. But a really big airport, mm -hmm. actually a bus is an advantage, not a, not a weakness. Sure. And so what's important about that is that if you don't continually disrupt the human frame of reference and frame of comparison mm -hmm. capitalism gets fixated on a single metric and overweight something hmm. and so it's I, I think that fact which is that the constant joggling of our attention to encourage us to make decisions in aggregate in as many contexts and frames as possible so that markets capture more information is a really important function of marketing. Because if you couldn't advertise, right? Okay, let's say you have the same thing where everybody goes onto a train website, they go, how do I get to Birmingham? Ooh, look, Virgin Trains is much faster. Meanwhile, East Midlands trains have added 5G Wi-Fi, um, uh, you know, uh, luxurious throne-style seating, sure. uh, you know, uh, a free mixologist in first class, right? <laughs> and they can't <laughs> and, tell anybody and, about that. And okay, it has to be kept secret. Uh, you know, exactly. You know, all the bling. Because my argument is, I mean, one, one suggestion for High Speed 2 that really interests me is the suggestion from, I think it's a Swiss firm, that they should make the trains double-decker. Hmm. Now, the reason that really interests me is if you have a train which literally is a 12-carriage train or even a 16-carriage train with two stories, you have 32 separate spaces on that train. Right. Now you can start doing, don't, you don't need to make the trains that fast because with 32 carriages on a single train, 16 at the bottom, 16 at the top, 
okay you can start doing really fucking interesting things with that train you know one of them could be a ball pit for kids i mean literally okay you could actually go okay and and for extremely frivolous commuters but um uh, but you could literally have uh you know one of the carriages could be a series of offices with meeting right. rooms Right. And you could do something, you know, that, that is an interesting idea because if you suddenly yeah. had a ton of surface area on that train right. to play with, you could literally have, you know, a cinema, a throne room, really as it were. One carriage would just be for massive egotists and it would just have one massive chair, okay, and then loads of beanbags so you could declaim to your, you know, your worshippers. But no, okay, I'm So then you refrain. You can have an onboard church. Right. Well, yeah, now, now, so, so when you suddenly have space to waste, yeah. you could make a train. What everybody does, they take a train and they try and get as many seats on as possible. Mm. And the net result is you have seats that look like fucking ironing boards. It's not very comfortable. Um, what, you, what I really want on a train, what I love on a train, is the seat next to me being empty. Seat next to me is empty, I'm happy. If I'm very silly, you the window like this. You can't really type. Because that's right. the other thing, they're obsessed with leg room. Right. If you want to work on a train, it's elbow room. There's that's no type room. Important. Sure. And of course, what's happened is the metric was devised before the laptop was. So interestingly, you know, the legroom metric for airlines, I think is actually a bit of a distraction. Well, I'm five foot eight. I don't give a shit. You know, okay. But actually, you know, the legroom thing is irrelevant to me, whereas the elbow room thing is really vital. And so you know, if you had a train, a two-story um, Birmingham train, and you mm. literally could play around with it, and you could say, okay, uh, what, what, what form of travel would you want? Do you want the, um, I'm, I'm slightly exaggerating with saying either the mobile chapel or mosque, but I mean, what, why not? I mean, you know, you've got 32 carriages. You could do Let's really, really fun. interesting it's things. Really interesting. Yeah, you know, yeah. you know you, so you could genuinely have a meeting room carriage where, you know, five of us traveling up to Birmingham would book, book a, you know, a table for five in the meeting room carriage. Mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. pay a significant premium, but we'd basically be there, be able to have a meeting in private. Yeah. Um, and you could have a ball pit for kids. Now, that's getting kind of interesting. Mm. I mean, it's completely countercultural to the whole way in which railway people approach problems. Sure. Because they always approach them with an engineering mindset, not a, not a perceptual mindset. But um, I mean, I've always asked the question, I think there should be more classes of travel on trains, by the way, and there should be more choice of seating. Just on that, Rory, do you think your message is getting through to the left brain people? Uh, well, one of the exciting things that happened with my book, which I never predicted, was it started to become really popular with the investment community in the States. Hmm. And I think what it is, is, if you're an investor, you're looking for alternative models in order to gain comparative advantage or insight over your competitors. Mm -hmm. So one thing, the community we ultimately have to um, influence, I think, is the, um, you know, the, the two communities that are most important are government, policymakers, and to some extent, people like hedge fund managers and, um, uh, and big investment firms. Right. Because if they're marketing friendly, then that will have a knock-on effect on the whole of business decision-making. Because hmm. you've got to get marketing back on the board. Nothing, nothing we do in Ogilvy is relevant unless you get marketing back on the board, in my opinion. Well, the and financial you, guys, I mean, the financial guys... They're, they're they much have, less hostile to marketing than they the are. people who serve them think they are. Really so the typical problem you have is you actually have, uh, having always stereotyped the financial community as a bit kind of left brain and kind of yeah. you know, slightly on the spectrum, 
when you meet them, they're yeah. desperately hungry for new insights, new frames, and new ideas. Human behavior. They have to know how humans behave, what, well, why it, they do what they do. It's fundamental. You've got it exactly. It's fundamental to, under, to determining competitive relative advantage. Yeah. What I think happens is the people talking to the financial guys, who goes and talks to them? I'll tell you who goes and talks to them. It's true in WPP. It's true in Unilever. I bet it's true everywhere. Okay. It's a finance director. And the CEO, who's a former finance director. <laughs> okay, so you never get, I bet there isn't a single case of the marketing guy. Ask Keith Weed about this, because he's now on the uh, non-executive director of WPP. Mm. But did they bring in Keith to talk about brands to the investor community? I hope they did, but mm. they probably didn't. They probably had a load of guys going, blah, 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 EBITDA, blah, 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 amortization over so-and-so, so-and-so. And the idea of going for a finance guy, basically, okay, a finance guy feels a deep sense of physical, visceral discomfort mm. talking about intangible things like brand, for the most part, okay? Mm. And to a finance guy, winning on superior brand strength is cheating. Mm. Mm -hmm. In his particular milieu or mindset, to out-brand, out-advertise, out out-market your competitors is cheating. The mm. only fair way to beat your competitors is by being more efficient and undercutting sure. them on cost, yeah. which is actually the opposite of what you should be trying to do in many, many markets. Mm -hmm. Really, really interesting. Tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. Um, actually, uh, this is a weird answer, but we're trying to fail a bit more hmm. uh, because uh, one of the interesting things is if you never fail, you're not testing enough. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like the phrase that if you've never missed a plane, you've spent too much of your life at airports. Mm -hmm. um, the most interesting case of failure recently is discovering that on a charity envelope, Four interventions which make no rational sense work to increase donations by about 15, 16, 17%. Mm. Mentioning gift aid halved donations. It both reduced the amount and the frequency of people giving. And that is the most important lesson because if you think about it, mentioning gift aid is logical. We normally wouldn't test it. We just assume it was a good thing to do. And so that's the most important failure I can possibly imagine because something that makes perfect logical sense can still fail. Yet the burden of proof we attach to logical things is much, much lower than the burden of proof we attach to illogical things. In the last three to five years, what ideas, behaviors, or habits have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes? Uh, I'm trying at the moment uh, to... Uh, and this is something that dr drives me insane, okay? Uh, I'm trying to, you know, destroy, I'm on a one-man battle to try and destroy email. Hmm. Because it's, one of the things that really bothers me is it's totally unfair, because I get 150, 200 emails a, 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 a day, okay? Wow. If you work in an administrative or managerial role at Ogilvy, answering your email is your job. So you sit at your desk for four hours, and sure. you're paid to do your email. My job is talking to people. Okay, mm. so every email I get has to be done in my spare time. Mm. And the what I'm trying to argue about is the huge opportunity cost. I would like to ban email in the office. Okay, literally, because um, two things. Okay, let's say you're the managing director of an ad agency, right? All the time, the hidden cost of doing email is that all the time you're doing email, you're not talking to people at random. Sure. 
who are you talking to, e to on email? The answer is we spend 10, 15 times longer responding to emails than we do writing them. The net effect of that in an organization is that um, your attention is directed disproportionately not to people at random or to the staff of yours who really matter, but to the people who happen to email you a lot. Right. Which means you're not in control of your attention and you're not in control of what's important. Yeah. Instead, it's the kind of wankery people who email the chief executive <laughs> every week sure. who are getting all the attention time from sure. senior people. And my argument is this is completely wrong, that attention should be actually randomly dispersed to an extent. And therefore, there's an opportunity cost to sitting at, at an office and looking at a screen. There is no point in uh, going to the office to do fucking email, right? Mm. Your screen is exactly the same wherever you are. If all you want to do is do email, go home rather than being antisocial in the office. Mm. And the only point of an office is face-to-face -face contact, either planned or serendipitous. And therefore, the time we spend in the office not doing that is basically a waste. Absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. And Rory, my final question, what do you know about the world of marketing, advertising, and human behavior today that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? Sure. To be honest, okay, most good creative people are instinctive behavioral scientists, okay? Uh, the problem you have is that a lot of good behavioral science, almost by definition, is counterintuitive or involves elements of what you might call disproportion. Hmm. The one thing I would have really killed for early in my career was the vocabulary, and actually of conventional economics as well. Hmm. I mean, by the way, uh, I don't, you know, I'm hugely in opposition to the economic plan to uh, m pretend you're physics, mm. okay? And the maths of economics I'm nervous about. Uh, uh, but two things I'm going to answer that. The vocabulary of economics and of behavioral economics is fabulous because unlike marketing vocabulary, it gives you the power to use scientific language to describe a psychological phenomenon without sounding weird. It's marketing language doesn't let you do that. Yeah. The other thing that's fascinating me at the moment, and I, I've talked about it on other podcasts, the whole ergodicity thing. Hmm. But uh, I wish, what which is, is the distinct, I, I, I better not talk about it because it'll I'll go on for <laughs> hours. But the distinction between 10 people buying something once uh, uh, and one person buying something 10 times. And the fact that actually in economics, they're indistinguishable, whereas actually in business, they're very, very, very different. different. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Quite fascinating. Thank you so much. For it's your been time. a joy. And pop in London when you're next in London. It'll be a real, real pleasure to see you. Thank you so Fantastic. much. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye -bye. Keep up the good bye -bye. work. We'll bye, -bye. bye bye. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to 49 such conversations we've had now with world class sales and marketing leaders. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to support us, the best way of doing that is actually giving us a review. It turns out that's the best way that Apple knows how to suggest the show to other like-minded people like yourself. So if you've got 30 seconds, please hop over to iTunes and leave a review. Thank you so much.